It's a perfect song for a day like today. Indeed, it's the heart of God to gather sons and daughters from every corner, from every time, from every place, and through these many centuries and millennia at this point since Jesus' death and resurrection, God has been building a household and a family for himself. As we go to God's word, will you pray with me a moment? Lord, we thank you that your church is so much bigger than we can recognize or imagine. And that even though that is true, you count people like us and small lives like ours as important and significant and purposeful that each of us has a place as your son and your daughter. Lord, thank you that you invite us to your table today. As we come to your word now, will you first feed us and give us something personal and significant from you that we can hear and treasure in our hearts so that we can come to Jesus' table uh, with great joy. In his name we pray. Amen. So we have been working through the book of Acts for several months at this point, and uh, we are at the end of Acts chapter 16. And 16 chapters into this book that a man named Luke wrote after interviewing and researching early Christian history, uh, 16 chapters in, it feels like things are happening. The church is growing, momentum is starting to build and roll. But what happens? Like if you're driving a car really fast, what happens when the tires go faster and faster? Is there more or less friction on the road? There's more, right? You don't get smoke on your tires when you're driving 25 miles an hour, right? You get some when you peel out or when you start driving 125 miles an hour. Similarly, whenever some momentum starts to build in the church or in human culture, or in a game, inevitably there starts to be more friction and resistance. If you are a kid and you're playing a video game against someone who's really good and they're starting to really beat you, a really smart thing to do is like take a bathroom break or call time out or say you're hungry, right? This is what football teams do as well. When the Detroit Lions play the Chicago Bears later today and the Bears are steamrolling them, right? If that were to happen, the coach of the Lions, like say the Bears put up two defensive touchdowns in a row, like that would be a good time for a timeout or like to fake an injury or something just to slow the momentum and slow the roll. Every good military person knows this. If you're in battle, sometimes exactly the right thing to do is to disengage or to temporarily retreat or do something to stop the momentum. In the church, spiritually speaking, when the kingdom of God is on a roll, pushing forward, breaking over barriers and walls, what do you think the power of evil wants to do when the momentum gets going? <laughs> Shut it down. That's right. Put up some resistance. Start some nonsense. Erect some barriers and walls so that maybe the positive spiritual momentum of the church and the kingdom of God will be kicked in the shins or slowed down or wounded or damaged. If you ever have been in a season of life where you really feel like you're making spiritual progress, inevitably some chaos will break out. It's one of the spiritual laws of the universe as far as I can tell. Now in the book of Acts, 16 chapters, the gospel has crossed from what we call the Middle East into North Africa all the way through Turkey, and now has jumped over 
into the continent of Europe, Acts chapter 16, the very first European believer, a woman named Lydia, and her whole household believe in Jesus. They start a church in her house in the Roman city called Philippi. It looks like the good guys have all the momentum at this point, and it should just be an easy downhill run to the book of Acts and for the next 2,000 years. Right? No. Here's what happens in the city of Philippi. There is um, a small business there. There's a couple entrepreneurs who uh, have a servant girl who is able to tell fortunes with remarkable accuracy. She is able to tell people's futures, and folks in the city of Philippi pay them all kinds of money to hear what's going to happen next in their life. The spiritual resistance starts when this fortune-telling servant girl meets Paul and Silas, these early Christians, and here's what this fortune-telling servant girl starts to say. These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. Now, the Bible has no tone of voice. I like to think she probably would have had, I mean, she was filled with a bad spirit, right? So nothing against this young woman, but probably this was delivered in a really annoying way, okay? And the book of Acts says that she did not stop saying this for days and days, everywhere Paul went. Hey, this guy knows the most high God. He's telling you the way to be saved. I mean, imagine if I stood outside a Starbucks and said like, wow, this coffee shop, it's awesome. You should totally blow all your money in there. Would, that, would Starbucks like that? I'm saying the right words, but everything about my delivery is like, don't go in that place. They're just going to take your money, and it's ridiculous. Nothing against Starbucks, really. So this anti-advertisement for the gospel happens for days and days. How would you react if someone was tailing you, just annoying you? This is what Paul did, this amazing, spirit-filled early church planter. Paul became so annoyed. That's great. So annoyed that he turned around and said to the Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the Spirit left her. Now that's something. This future-telling Spirit is no match for the Holy Spirit. All it takes is an honest, direct word in Jesus' name, and this fortune-telling Spirit skedaddles. This may seem like great news. No more bad advertising. But what if you were the entrepreneur and small business owner that was making a lot of cash off this fortune-telling servant? Would you be happy? No. So the spiritual resistance quickly transforms into financial resistance. These guys are really angry. And then they stir up a crowd and they start saying things like, these Christians... They've been saying this nonsense all over the world, and now they're right here in our city causing all this kind of trouble. And quickly, the financial resistance transforms into political resistance, and Paul and Silas get arrested because enough people believe that, hey, these guys are going to cause all kinds of trouble and nonsense right here in River City. Here's what the book of Acts says once the political resistance starts. So a crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates, the leaders of the city, ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. 
after they had been severely flogged. I mean, this is like being caned to the point where it's like ripping open the flesh in your back. Okay, this is no small thing. After they were severely flogged, they were thrown into the prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the innermost cell and fastened their feet in stocks. Now, we've all had some bad days in the last year and a half. I've had some bad days in the last year and a half, but none have ended with a beating and imprisonment. Amen? Paul and Silas get publicly humiliated, caned. I mean, their backs must be burning and screaming, and they are locked up in the innermost cell. What is a person to do on the worst of days? Can you remember in the last 18 months just having an awful day when you were maybe at your most anxious, maybe at your most disappointed, maybe at your most depressed, your most hopeless? What do people like us do? What do Christians do when we feel that way? can tell you what most Americans do. Um, we tend to distract ourselves. Right? Like, hop onto Amazon and just look for some stuff. Because maybe it will take the edge off. We tend to distract ourselves and self-medicate. You can fill in the blank for whatever that, that means for you. I mean, th- this is our modern way of handling our deepest and darkest and most painful things. As natural as that is, as easy for it is to, for us to distract ourselves in this modern world, um, the biblical way is a little different. The biblical way, when you are having your most anxious, depressed, darkest day, it, it's two steps. Step one is to cry out to God. And be as honest as you can. Like, we don't hear this part in Acts chapter 16. Um, We catch up with Paul and Silas at midnight. This was probably like midday. There were probably 12 hours in there where there were a lot of words exchanged between them and God. Like, I thought you sent us here. What is, like, what is going on? This is, like, are we going to die here? In spirituality, we call that prayers of lament. That's like bringing your heart, being honest to God, just naming the pain and the difficulties for what, the, what they are. That is step one. Step two, it sounds very counterintuitive, but it is to tap into something that opens you to resurrection life. There's a whole bunch of ways that are possible to do this in the Christian life. Step one, lament, tell God all about it. Step two, Open up an avenue so that God can pour some resurrection back into you. Not distract you, but pour some actual life, like, through your mind and through your heart and deep down into your soul. Like, that's what God wants to do when we are at our lowest. Sometimes this can happen very quickly. Other times this can take weeks and months and even longer. Paul and Silas probably have a period of prayers of lament, and then we catch up to them at midnight. Acts 16 says this, around midnight... Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. 
This is their way of getting open to the resurrection life, worshiping, singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and all at once, the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains dropped off and came loose. The jailer woke up, and he, when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because if you're a Roman jailer and you fail to keep your prisoners, Rome is going to do something far worse to you. About to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped, but Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are still all here. Friends, this is the power of resurrection life. Paul and Silas choose in their darkest hour to worship God anyway. When it would have been so easy just to grumble, to shout hallelujah anyways. This is their way of opening up and connecting upwards to divine life. They could have looked up and seen this high above themselves, a jailer, the Roman magistrates, maybe even Caesar, like, oh my goodness, they're all coming down on us. But they choose to look infinitely higher to the God who made everything and everybody and can actually do something to heal their wounds and change the whole situation. This is why we come to worship every single Sunday, in my opinion. Not to hear our favorite music, not to hear a snappy sermon, not to be in comfortable seats, but to lift our vision higher than governors and presidents and laws and medical advice all the way up to the God who formed your heart and is going to receive you back someday into his everlasting life. And if you're like me, Monday through Saturday, my vision just, just keeps hitting the ceiling, just not even an inch above my head, sometimes just at my nostrils. That's as high as my vision gets. Like, I need this, and this is why it's so significant for us to read God's word, to pray together in spirit, to come to this table, to sing hallelujah, to clap our hands, even to move around a little bit. Because we have some dark days, and we need some resurrection life poured back into us. At least I do. This is why, as a young adult, I think I was so attracted to music. And not only to music in general, but music in the church, because something supernatural can open up. Not just entertaining, not just pretty, not just moving, but something supernatural happens when we, the people of God, come in loving worship into the presence of our Creator. Uh, a long time ago, my wife Sarah and I, I think we were 23, maybe 22, just getting done with college and we came down to Chicago and joined my older sister and brother-in-law who were in something called Youth with a Mission for like a two-week-long intensive prayer experience. So kind of thought like, hey, who can't learn how to pray more and more enthusiastically? And it turned out that we spent much of that two weeks of like prayer experience like singing and worshiping because like to sing is to pray twice, <laughs> Right? You get, you get the music, and you get the words flowing through, flowing through you. It's awesome. I could take you to several places around the city of Chicago now more than 25 years later and tell you exactly what we were, like, singing in that spot, what we were praying about, because after two weeks with some really crazy other Christians, like, it was amazing the power of worship to open something supernatural. This happens all over the pages of the Bible. 
Do you remember the story of Joshua and the walls of Jericho? They march around, and on the last day, what happens? They shout, they sing, they blow trumpets, and is it just the sound of the acoustics that brings the wall down? (laughs) No, it's the hand of God that moves when people obediently worship. There's this man named David. He wrote half of the book of Psalms. He was a musician. David, before he was king, was a shepherd and a harpist. He served the king of Israel, Saul, who, like that servant girl in Philippi, was filled with an evil spirit, and the music and worship of David would push away, at least for a time, the darkness in King Saul. Another prophet, Elisha, the book of Kings, chapter 2, look it up. A king of Israel says to Elisha, I need you to prophesy for me right now. And Elisha says this, bring me a harpist. The harpist comes, and as the music starts, the Bible says, 2 Kings 3.13, I think, that the hand of the Lord fell upon Elisha, and he began to prophesy. Like, it is no small thing when music and the worship of God happen in an obedient way. A wonderful story that Pastor Jeff reminded me of this week is in 2 Chronicles 20. King Jehoshaphat is about to have... uh, a war with Midian, and here's his idea. We should have a choir go out in front of the army. Does that seem like a good military strategy? Any singers want to sign up for that? It sounds terrifying, right? But they do this. They send out a choir in front of the army, and they sing this song, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Who do you think wins that day? The people of God, like the hand of God moves through the obedience and the worship of God's people. Here's how this story ends. The jailer, in the middle of the night, calls for lights. And he rushes in, trembling before Paul and Silas. Remember, he thinks he's going to die still. He then brought them out and asked them this question. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? I think he means that question on a whole bunch of levels. How can I be saved from the doom coming on me from Rome? Uh, How can I be saved from the consequences of having my jail that just fell down? How can I be saved from, like, all these prisoners who probably are going to do something to me? Like, how can I be saved in the eyes of your God, who clearly is way stronger than I had any idea or imagination? What can I do to be saved? And they tell him this. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. You and your whole household. And then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in the house. Now, I wish we had a little account of exactly the gospel, but we've had a whole bunch of messages, a whole bunch of examples of what Paul says. If you want to hear the gospel according to Paul, just read the book of Romans sometimes. It basically amounts to this. Jesus died, and Jesus rose from the dead, and if your life is linked to Jesus, you will not only die, but your life, your spirit, starting right now, will rise up to a higher and better life. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them, washed their wounds, and immediately he and all his household were baptized. 
I admit that I never noticed before this week, as many times as I've read the book of Acts, that before the jailer and his house are baptized, the jailer performs kind of an informal baptism on Paul and Silas. Like they're in this horrible, dirty prison with backs bleeding and bruised, and out of kindness first, this jailer washes them up and bandages them. And then I think probably immediately Paul and Silas turn and then apply the same water, maybe from the same source, to this jailer and his family and his servants and his whole household and offer a much better kind of healing, healing in the name of Jesus. They are baptized in that very moment. And then something even lovelier happens. The jailer brings them into his house and sets a meal before them. Remember, this is in the middle of the night still. And he was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. Now, in this church, we believe there are two sacraments, two things that Jesus instituted as simple signs for us to repeat, to remember who he is and his presence and his power. They are baptism, and we see it right here in Acts chapter 16, and the second is the Lord's Supper. And in just these couple of verses, Luke holds out in front of us this amazing scene of a baptism happening and then a shared meal in Jesus' name. And the result of this meal is that this jailer who just minutes and hours before thought the whole power of Rome was going to come down on his head through baptism and through a meal in Jesus' name, he is filled with great joy. That's what Sunday is for. That's what Sunday is for, to lift our vision above our bosses, above ourselves, above the governors, above the president, above the United Nation, above every earthly power, and to lift up our eyes to Jesus himself, who is infinitely higher. And miracle of miracles, when we lift up our vision that high, what happens simultaneously is that we witness Jesus stooping down low to give himself his body, his blood, his life for people like us, for jailers, for Philippians, for Filipinos, for Americans, for Puerto Ricans, for Guatemalans, for Russians. All of us are invited in to this very table. Friends, we have the joy of walking with that jailer as our brother and receiving this meal now in Jesus' name. Let's come to his table. Amen? Amen.